We are in the second week of this new teaching series from the little book in the Old Testament by the name of Habakkuk. It's called Major Message from a Minor Prophet. Last week we opened the book in chapter one. It's only a three chapter book. Um, but if you were not here last week, let me just uh, remind you that you can go on our website and listen to the podcast or on the Redeemer app. There's also print copies of each week's message available out in the lobby. In this particular series, each um, week builds on the next or the previous week. So um, if you do happen to miss uh, one of the weeks, I do encourage you to either listen or pick up, pick up a printed copy uh, so that you can keep up with the message of this uh, great book. I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and the question is this. What do you do when, you're, when you pray to God, but you don't like the answer that you receive? What do you do when you pray to God for something and you don't like the answer that you receive? You applied to the college of your dreams, but they said no. You interviewed for a new job, but they found someone more qualified. You asked God for healing, and the doctor says the chemo didn't work. You prayed and prayed to find a husband, and after all the, these years, he has not found you yet. You asked her to marry you, and she said no. You sunk your life savings into a new business only to see it fail within a year. You moved across the country to take a new job, but it didn't work out, and you're now struggling to find employment. You never intended to be divorced, but here you are. You planned on having more children, but it isn't happening for some reason. You see, we've all been there, haven't we? And most of us more than once, because that's the way life is. We have our dreams, and we make our plans. And we sincerely seek, I think, to do God's will. We pray to the Lord, but when the answer doesn't come, or when the answer is not what we wanted, what do we do then? We don't talk about this very often, but I think we should. If we live long enough, we'll discover that God's plan and our plans often are not the same. We all know that we should pray for God's will to be done, and most of us, I think, do, but it still jolts our spirit when we discover that God has a completely different plan in mind for us. That's the story of Habakkuk. He doesn't like the answer he received to his prayer. Last week we talked about this. First, he thought God was ignoring his nation, the nation of Judah's sin. And secondly, he thought God would never use the evil, terrible nation of Babylon to come and be the judge of his own people. And he's wrong on both counts. So what do we do when God doesn't live up to our expectations? How do we respond when the Lord's answer is not what we wanted or expected? Habakkuk was troubled by something I think that troubles all of us. He couldn't reconcile his view of God with the injustice he saw all around him. Several years ago, George Barna, who's a pollster, asked Americans this question. He said, if you could ask God one question and know that you would receive an answer, what would you ask him? And by far, the number one response was, 
Why is there pain and suffering in the world? And that makes sense because we see suffering on every hand and we wonder where it comes from and why God allows it. The great uh, theologian C.S. Lewis remarked that the problem of suffering is atheism's greatest weapon against the Christian faith. Why are Christians being persecuted and even massacred in many countries around the world today? Why did the tornado land here instead of there? Why was this girl kidnapped and that one escaped? Why would God, allow a would God allow a child to be born with a disability? You see, the list of our questions is endless. In the first message from Habakkuk last week, we talked about the world situation both in Habakkuk's day and in our day, and that was necessary to set up this series. But in this week's message, we move to a deeper level. When we consider the sadness we see all around us, we can sit and offer all kinds of commentary, but at some point, we have to deal with God. And that brings us back to this little book, written approximately in 605 BC. This is the story of one man who wrestled with God about the hard questions of life, and in three short chapters, he brings us face to face with some of the deepest mysteries of life. Here's a simple outline of this book. In chapter one, we read about faith tested. In chapter two, faith taught. In chapter three, faith triumphant. And when we read this book, perhaps the most striking thing is the change that takes place inside of Habakkuk himself. In three chapters, he moves from fear to faith. He moves from burden to blessing, from perplexity to praise from confusion to confidence, and from worry to worship. And it all boils down to this one fact. The Babylonians are coming, and you can't stop them. And when they reach Jerusalem, they will conquer it, and they will eventually destroy it. And God said, I am using them to judge Judah for their sin. Now, when Habakkuk heard this, he objected vehemently. God, how can you do this? That is the key question of the book. God, how can you do this? And then this book is a dialogue between a frustrated man of faith and a God whose ways he cannot always understand. Maybe we can better understand the book this way. The issue is not Judah and her sin. The issue is not Babylon and its evil. The issue is not Habakkuk's doubt. The issue is God. We all end up there eventually. All of our questions lead back to God because he's the one in whom, with whom we have to deal. Even the smaller issues lead us back to the one who sits on the throne of the universe. In the last half of Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet has three questions for God. And after asking those questions, he will make a decision that shapes everything else in this book. And the first question is, God, who are you? Chapter 1, verse 12 says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. Leads us back to the original question. What do we do when God makes no sense? 
I think we either walk away from the faith, as many do, or we remind ourselves of who God is. Sometimes what we need is a good dose of theology to strengthen our faltering faith. And when faced with the news that these hated Babylonians would soon invade Judah and nothing could stop them, Habakkuk goes back to what the theologians call the first principles. Look at verse 12 and what he called, and the names that he uses for God. Everlasting, you are sovereign. Lord, you are the personal God of Israel. God, you are the strong one, the creator, the majestic ruler. Holy, you are in a class by yourself and set apart from sin. Rock, you are our only safe place. And these are no small points. As Habakkuk tries to get his mind wrapped around the shocking truth that God is about to use Babylon to judge Israel, he goes back to what he knows to be true about God. And this is a vital step for all of us. Consider it this way. If we remove God's sovereignty, we will forever question his wisdom. If we remove God's loyalty and love, we will forever question his faithfulness. If we remove God's majesty, we will forever question his power. If we remove God's holiness, we will forever question his fairness. If we remove God's protection, we will forever question his goodness. See, the question is not, do I believe in God, but rather, what sort of God do I believe in? That's the key question we all have to answer. You may be asking how I can be so confident with my answers, and that's a fair question. I came face to face with the unanswerable questions of life when I stepped into the role of being a pastor. I was put in a position where I needed to help families going through some very tough times. Sometimes I can make sense of tragedy. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes the untimely death of a person is a total mystery. Sometimes situations make sense to me and sometimes they don't. But I have learned that faith is a choice that we all make and sometimes we choose to believe because of what we see and often we believe in spite of what we can see. And as I look at the world around me, many things remain mysterious and unanswerable, but if there is no God, and if God is not good, then nothing in this life makes sense. I truly have no other choice. I, if I sound confident, it is because I've learned that the on, our only confidence is in God and God alone. I've tried to do it on my own, what Habakkuk is doing in this verse. Time and again, when faced with mysteries I cannot explain, I go back to the first principles of life. Principles like God is good. God is holy. God is just. God knows all things. God is love. God makes no mistakes. The Bible is true. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and someday he will return to this earth. The Holy Spirit is real. His Spirit lives inside of me, and God will never, ever leave me or forsake me. And all things work together for my good and God's glory, and God will ultimately complete his work in me. 
You see, just reminding ourselves of those principles of our faith can bring faith to our hearts. That's what I mean by going back to first principles. You know, some of us have heard the antiphonal chant between the pastor and congregation that goes like this. The pastor says, God is good, and the congregation responds all the time. The pastor then says, and all the time, and the congregation responds, God is good. Somewhere I read that this chant started in the churches of Nigeria, and only they add something a little different. After they say that chant, everyone says in unison, and I am a witness. It's good, isn't it? It's powerful. It's biblical. Maybe, maybe we'll stop right now and just say that, those words together. Will you join me? God is good. And all the time. And I am a witness. That last phrase makes this truth personal. personal. It's exactly what Habakkuk is doing in verse 12. Despite his confusion, he is giving testimony to his own faith in God. And that leads to the second question, and that is, God, how can you do this? Look at verse 13. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? And here we reach the heart of the problem. See, we all understand that there are moral inequities in the universe. Some people seem to have it easy, while others suffer for years. I don't see any way to deny that observation. While we commonly say things like, into each life some rain must fall, it seems like some people get a little sprinkle and others get a torrential downpour of trouble all of their life. How do we explain that? Habakkuk's particular problem stemmed from what he seen, what seems to be a conflict in God. If God cannot tolerate wrongdoing, which is a true point, how can he use these evil Babylonians to judge his people Judah? Also a true point. You see, Babylon's sins were far greater than the sins of Judah. And you might be asking, isn't that a contradiction? The answer, I think, is no. There are no contradictions with God. But it is true that he does things that seem to us to be inconsistent. And that's a key to, this, uh, to understanding this, what seems to us. God's ways are not always going to make sense to us, not even when they're viewed through the eyes of faith. And perhaps a better way to put it would be in the short run, which is life on this planet for all of us. In the short run, God's ways will sometimes not make sense to us. We simply don't know why things happen the way they do. Sometimes we find out later. Sometimes we may not know until we get to heaven. But every thoughtful person wrestles with this at some point. Eventually we're forced to go back to the first spiritual law of life, and that is that God is God and we're not. You see, God is sovereign, we're not. Every mistake that we make comes because we forget that basic fact. It's good for all of us to remember Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Whenever I read that verse, I want to say, well, does that answer your question? You see, it's at that point God has not yet answered Habakkuk's question. The answer won't come until the next chapter. 
But for the moment, let me simply note that any answer must go back to the truth that God is God, and we're not. And until we grasp that fact, we will continue to struggle with the Lord. Here's the third question. God, how long will this last? Look at verse 17. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? The them in this verse refers to the whole Babylonian army personified by King Nebuchadnezzar as one person. He keeps conquering one nation after another and no one can stop him. If he sees a city, he takes it. If he wants what you have, he takes it. And if he captures you, he's probably going to kill you. To him, people are like fish, and he's got a big net. He keeps reeling in one nation after another. And guess who he's fishing for now? It's the nation of Judah. Now, it is in the face of this crushing evil that Habakkuk wonders when it's all going to end. Will anybody be able to stop Babylon? Or will his reign of terror go on forever? Who can stand in their way? And I think that touches the deepest question we have when life begins to crumble in around us. How long, God, will this last? You see, most of us can stand up under trouble if we know that eventually it's going to come to an end. But if it never ends, how are we going to survive? So there you have Habakkuk's three questions. Lord, uh, who are you? To which Habakkuk supplies his own answer. Second question, how can you do this? For which there is no answer given. And third question, how long will this last? For which, again, there's no answer given. Three honest questions, the kind we all ask when we're in trouble. And we should note that Habakkuk is an utterly honest man who, when he has doubts, doesn't hesitate to tell them to the Lord. He doesn't cover up his doubts with a lot of pious sayings. He doesn't rush to to give glib answers. He answers the only question he can answer, and, and then he has to wait for God to answer the other two. You see, he's confident in God, but he's confused by what God's doing in the world. He's a believing man with some serious questions that he cannot answer. So what now? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, tells us what he decided to do. He said, I will climb up to my watchtower, and I will stand at my guard post, and there I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. This verse describes some sort of wooden tower that the prophet built, and there alone he's going to watch and he's going to wait for God's answer to come. Habakkuk did not know how the Lord would answer or how long it would have to wait. He just knew that having said all that was on his heart, the only thing left to do was wait for God. Now remember, he still doesn't understand how God can use wicked people to judge Judah for their sins. It doesn't make any sense to him, but he's going to wait. In his little devotional book that some of you may have used or read uh, over time uh, called My Utmost for His Highest, the author Oswald Chambers has some helpful things to say at this point. He says, God can never make us into wine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, but he, but he uses someone uh, whom we dislike or a set of circumstances to which uh, we would never submit, uh, and then we object. 
We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. If ever we are going to be made wine to drink, we will have to be crushed. If we're ever going to be made wine to drink, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. And then he goes on to say that if we fight against the Lord's plan for us, anything that is produced in us, any wine that is produced in us will be bitter and undrinkable. You see, we have to be placed into God and brought into agreement, into alignment with him before we can be broken in his hands. And that's surely good advice. But oh, how hard it is to practice, especially when we deeply object to the fingers God uses to crush us. But that is precisely where Habakkuk is at this moment. He knows that Judah needs to be broken because of their sin, but he cannot reconcile himself to God using the hated Babylonians as his appointed fingers of crushing judgment. So he says, I've decided to wait on the Lord. We don't know how long he waited, only that at length God did answer his question. Pastor J. Sidlow Baxter offers this observation. He said, people say that God does not speak to people as he did long ago. The truer statement is that people do not listen today as we did long ago. You see, at some point, we have to stop talking about our problems. But no one wants to do that. We want to talk. We need to talk. And talking is often beneficial. We all need friends who will listen to us in our times of agony. But some Christians can't get better because we won't stop talking and start listening. Maybe you don't agree. And you say, no, I'm going to tell uh, Facebook all my problems. That's not necessarily a good idea. Sometimes we need to stop sharing and we need to start listening and trusting God for the answers. So as I come to the end of this message this morning, we've already reached a turning point in this little book. Having laid out all of his complaints before God, Habakkuk is now waiting for an answer. And while he's honest about his complaints, he's also wise enough to take them to the Lord and leave them there. Which leads me to one more important truth. Our deepest problems are often not psychological, they're not sociological, and they are certainly not political. Our deepest problems are usually theological. Can God be trusted? And what kind of God do we really believe in? So I was thinking about that question. Two thoughts came to me. He's not the God we think he is. He's much better than we can possibly fathom. And that is a huge truth. Now, I chose the word better because it sums up all I've been trying to say in this message. Not only is God far beyond us and more vast than our puny minds can possibly conceive, but he's much better than we imagine. See, God's ways are better. God's heart is better. God's thoughts are better. God's plan for us is better and all that God is and all that God does is better than anything we can possibly imagine. Because, it, because that is true, we shouldn't be surprised that we continually run into the problem of not understanding God. And it shouldn't surprise us when his answers don't always line up with our plans and our desires. So back to the original question. What do you do when you've prayed to God 
but you don't like the answer that you've received. See, that happens to all of us sooner or later. We can try bargaining with God, but that usually doesn't work. We can get angry, but that doesn't help. We ask God for some questions, which is what Habakkuk did, or we ask him questions. We can go back, but the truth is we need to go back to the first principles and remind ourselves of who God is. And that's also what Habakkuk did. Most of us can decide to wait on the Lord in faith and hope and confidence uh, uh, that what doesn't make sense now will someday make sense. And as we wait, remember that God doesn't keep time the way we do. Uh, the great author A.W. Tozer once said, God never hurries. He has no deadlines against which he must work. So for the moment and for today, we're going to leave Habakkuk right there. He's in his tower. He's looking and he's watching and he's waiting for God to give him an answer. Waiting's good. Good for the soul, especially if we're waiting on the Lord. And as we wait, we need to remember that God has not forgotten us. We are on his mind every single moment of the day. He sees us in our confusion. He sees us in our fear. He sees us in our stress. We need not despair, but let, our, let us rest our weary souls in his mighty promise that's recorded for us in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's writings, chapter 40. I invite you to read it with me. But those who trust in the Lord and soar high on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Let's pray. God, sometimes we just need to stop. Stop the insanity of the world around us. Stop the madness and listen. So teach us how to wait, how to watch for you, how to listen and keep us expectant for the answers to all of our questions and then position us to be receptive to those answers. We pray in Jesus' name.